As we begin this morning, I want you to think about the question of the, the test of faith. What, what pops into your mind when you hear that phrase? Do you think of the testing of, of your faith as a Christian to be a, a normal thing that everyone experiences, or is it unusual and, and strange? Is, it, is that the exception or the rule? Sometimes we hear about great tests of faith like our brothers and sisters at Houston Northwest are experiencing this great tragedy or or think about the families in Uvalde and we can't even imagine those things. We don't want to think about them. But then again, we look at our own lives and we know that there's testing. There are trials that come. There's suffering that comes. There are difficult situations that we face. This morning we're looking at this great passage in Hebrews that Christians know as the Hall of Faith, or we often call it that because it's this wonderful list of Old Testament saints who lived by faith. And this list was given to God's people here in Hebrews as a way to encourage the the first readers of Hebrews to, to keep going in their faith. He said at the end of Hebrews 10, you're in need of endurance. And throughout this letter, he's warned them against shrinking back. He's warned them against abandoning Christ as their hope. But in this context, we see that the reason he needs to do this is because they are being tested. It's because testing of the faith happens all the time and sometimes happens in very intense ways. And so they need encouragement to endure in the faith of testing. So the Hall of Faith is a, is a great name for this, but we need to keep in mind it's the, the Hall of Faith for those who are being tested in their faith. We also need to remember as we look at this great passage about faith, once again, this is not a, it's not a generic kind of faith. So the author of Hebrews is not commending a, just a generally positive outlook on life. So this, this is not the kind of faith you might hear from a, a TV football coach. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Now he wants to build up his readers so that they have faith in Christ. And to make his point, he argues that these great old covenant believers were all waiting for the work of Christ for the fulfillment of their faith. Dad's already referred to this Uh, We see in verse 33 of chapter 11 that he says that there are some of these saints who obtained promises. But then in verse 39, talking about everybody in chapter 11 that he's mentioned, he said, those mentioned did not receive what was promised. So even those who enjoyed various kinds of victory and success, they had not received their ultimate reward. They were looking forward to something else. And the something else that the writer talks about is is the something better that God has provided for us in Christ. It's that perfection that he writes about at the end of Hebrews chapter 11. that, That total cleansing of the conscience that only the blood of the Son of God can produce. So the author's long list of believers is here to say, hold fast to Christ because Christ is the hope of all people. Christ is the savior of the patriarchs. He's the savior of Moses. He's the savior of the Israelites in the wilderness. He was the savior of David, 
and he's the savior of Samuel and the prophets. Christ is the savior of those first century Christians who first read the book of Hebrews. And Christ is our savior also. The crucified and exalted son of God is the one who secures forgiveness of sins and fellowship with God for sinners who live by faith. So because Christ is our only hope, hold on to Christ. Keep living by faith in the only Savior that there is for sinners. That's the author's exhortation as he winds up Hebrews, and that's the reason for this list of believers in Hebrews 11. He uses them to show us what faith looks like as it is tested. Again, he knows that living by faith in this world, an evil world where sin abounds, where there's suffering, living by faith in that kind of world is to live by tested faith. And so he shows us how these Old Testament saints endured in faith through various trials. So for the sake of our message this morning, we're going to divide these people up into four groups, four ways that faith is tested. First, faith is tested when God's promise seems to fail. Then faith is tested in the face of evil power. Third, faith is tested by the status quo. And fourth, faith is tested by our weakness. So again, those four ways faith is tested. Faith is tested when God's promise seems to fail. Faith is tested by evil power. Faith is tested by the status quo, and faith is tested by our weakness. So let's look at this first way faith is tested in verses 17 through 22. The first set of examples we get are what we call the patriarchs, going from Abraham to Joseph. These all endured with faith when God's promise seemed to fail. So let's read verses 17 through 22. Chapter 11 of Hebrews, verses 17. Listen to God's word. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. The example he gives the most attention to here, obviously, is Abraham. And Abraham, when he was tested, by being commanded to offer up Isaac, who's called here his only son. Of course, we know that Abraham had another son at this point, Ishmael, but Isaac was the promised son, the one through whom God's promises to Abraham would come true. And so that's the sense in which he's called Abraham's only son. He's Abraham's only hope of seeing God's promises fulfilled. God's promises run through Isaac. And so with this command of God to offer up Isaac, Abraham is faced with a problem. 
Through Isaac, God's made this promise to make Abraham a great nation and to make Abraham a great name and to give him this land of Canaan. So how can God keep his promise to Abraham if Abraham was going to have to kill Isaac? Listen to how the mid-20th century scholar F.F. Bruce describes Abraham's faith. He says, Later Jewish writers, reflecting on the incident of Abraham offering Isaac, make much of the turmoil in Abraham's heart, although the biblical narrative has little enough to say on this score. Indeed, the impression which we get from the biblical narrative is that Abraham treated it as God's problem. It was for God and not for Abraham to reconcile his promise and his command. What do we do when we don't understand how God's promise and God's command can be reconciled? What do we do when God's promise seems to fail? We treat it as God's problem. It is for God, not for us, to reconcile God's promise and God's command. The author tells us that Abraham believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. And we know that Abraham's faith was not misplaced. He even goes so far as to say, figuratively speaking, God did resurrect Isaac. Right? Living things that get tied to an altar don't come back from that experience. But Isaac did. Abraham did not try to solve God's problem for him. He was in the act when he was stopped. He trusted God to provide the answer. And that's what God did. God provided the lamb in the thicket. God provided a substitute for Isaac. After Abraham's example, we get examples from Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And in each of these cases, the act of faith is somewhat murkier and it's not as dramatic. But in each of those cases, we see that their, their faith or the act of faith that the author draws attention to comes from the end of their lives. These patriarchs at the end of their lives didn't see the promise of God fulfilled to them. And they, they couldn't have known how God's promise would ultimately come true. Remember, if it would have been up to Isaac, he would have chosen Esau over Jacob. But even after he's tricked, he, he doesn't back down. Jacob and Joseph both died in Egypt, hundreds of miles away from God's promised land. And what the author wants us to see is, like their father Abraham, these patriarchs trusted God to keep his promise. When faced with the problem of, how is this going to happen? They didn't solve it themselves. They treated it as God's problem. They trusted God to provide the solution. So how does this apply to us? One key thing we can remember is that we live on the other side of God keeping his promise to Abraham. Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham. It's through Jesus that Abraham's name became great. It's through Jesus that Abraham is a blessing to the world. It's through Jesus' death and resurrection that Abraham has hope to enter that heavenly city made by God. We have all the more confidence that God keeps his promises because we've seen him keep his promises in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen and seated at God's right hand. And yet, aren't we also tempted to believe 
that God's promise may fail. We know that Christ has made us promises, right? He's made his promise never to leave us or forsake us. But sometimes we feel abandoned and alone. We know that God has promised to, to complete the good work that he began in us. But we often feel stuck in besetting sin. We're promised an eternity with Christ, living with him in his heavenly city. But we wonder, will I ever reach it? Will Christ be with me at that moment of death? We've been promised Christ will return, but we don't see him. We have these questions. Will God's promise fail? We have to admit that we ask these questions even though for the most part, we don't experience the extreme persecution that many of our brothers and sisters throughout history have, or even in the world have. So Christians in Afghanistan over the last year have faced extreme suffering as the Taliban has retaken power. Christians in Iran and North Korea know persecution every day. How must those Christians be tempted to doubt God's promises? But when God's promises seem to fail, we first trust him by remembering, remembering how he has already provided for us in Christ. We remember how God has come near and in the person of Christ, he's paid for our sin. Jesus died to pay sin's price so that we can stand in God's presence. Abraham trusted that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead and God preserved Isaac. And we know that we are already raised with Christ by faith. We've received this miracle of resurrection and we, we look forward to when it's finally consummated. So when God's promises seem to fail, we remember how God has already kept his promises. But to put the issue more pointedly to our lives, we should think about questions like this. How do we keep loving our enemies in a world where you're supposed to take every opportunity to score points against your enemies? Or how do we live an ethical life in a world where cheating is normal? How do we keep love, living lives of gentleness when outrage and cynicism are the order of the day. The Christian life makes no worldly sense. We may even become convinced by watching the way our neighbors operate that cutting corners and compromising in certain ways is just, it's just part of modern life. We just have to do it to get by, to, to preserve our way of life. But remember, God's command for Abraham to offer Isaac made no worldly sense. Abraham's approach shows us how we live in an evil world where holiness doesn't make sense. We treat it as God's problem. Trust that God will vindicate you and keep loving that difficult spouse. Trust that God has been patient with you and will be patient with you and keep being patient with your wayward children. Trust that God will provide for your needs and, and pay your debts and treat your employees with generosity. Faith recognizes that we are not God. Faith recognizes that we don't have the wisdom needed to connect all the dots in our lives. 
We don't have the power to change our circumstances. We don't have the power to change others. But God has the power to raise the dead. So when you can't see how in the world God will keep his promises to you, you can know by faith that he already has. Just as surely as he brought Abraham's children out of Egypt to Canaan, and just as surely as Christ rose from the dead, God will not fail to keep his promises. We trust God even when his promises seem to fail. The next example of faith in the midst of testing is from Moses. In Moses, we see that faith is tested by power. So let's read verses 23 through 28. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. We see two ways in Moses' life that power tests faith. Power tests faith through intimidation. We see this in the, the king of Egypt's power through his edict and his anger. That's one way faith is tested by power. We also see that faith is tested by the allure of power. Moses rejected the treasures of Egypt that were his as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Faith is tempted by the allure of power. And we also see here that power has an evil nature. That's clear in the king's edict, right? His edict was that all the baby boys of Israel should be destroyed. The treasures of Egypt are related to the fleeting pleasures of sin here. We also see evil power on display in the destroyer of the firstborn at the end of the passage. The temptation that we face when we face intimidation is fear. And not, not just the experience of being afraid, but the, the actions that accompany fear. Few of us have ever faced evil power like the Hebrews faced when Pharaoh commanded their infants be murdered. But when we think about situations like that, we shouldn't count on our own natural courage. The Lord says what we need in those situations is faith. By faith, we can have a greater fear for the Lord whom we cannot see than the powerful king or boss that we can see. Faith gives us a right understanding that earthly powers can only kill our bodies, but they have no power over our souls. They can't cast us into hell. So an employer can take our livelihood, but they cannot touch our fellowship with God. Moses' parents seem to know something about Moses. We are told here that they saw he was a beautiful child and in Exodus that he was a fine child. This seems to be more than just parental pride. 
There was something about him, perhaps God revealed to them, and they trusted God, and they hid Moses. They weren't afraid of the king's power, right? They, they hid their son by faith. So it's by faith that we resist the intimidation of power. Where are you tempted to be intimidated? Maybe it's just within a, a conversation with a coworker. You're you're kind of afraid to, to out yourself as believing these crazy things about Jesus. Are you afraid of the scorn that you might have in a conversation? Or are you afraid of, of standing up for truth at work in a broader sense that you will be, you'll be fired because of your beliefs? Are you afraid at school to be a Christian? Have you, have you asked others to pray for you? as you stand up to intimidating power? Do other people know the places where you're intimidated? Are you asking for their help? We resist the intimidation of power by faith. Moses also faced the allure of power. He enjoyed this privileged place in Egypt. He was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had the access to this great wealth. And this kind of temptation is especially deceptive because it, it comes in the form of a blessing, right? Wealth and, and power alone are not sinful. But what compromises are necessary to maintain wealth and power? Again, for, for Moses, it was a very clear choice. It was either be with God's people or be with the enemy of God's people. That's the, the, where the choice ultimately fell. And so by God's grace, he chose to be mistreated with, his, with God's people than the riches of Egypt. By faith, he was able to see that the riches of Egypt were the fleeting pleasures of sin. Don't we need that kind of vision? That vision that comes by faith? We need to know when, when the riches and power were tempted to pursue when they're sinful and when they're not. That comes by faith. By faith, Moses valued God and God's people, even when it required mistreatment. Verse 26 describes this mistreatment as the reproach of Christ. Moses chose the reproach of Christ. This idea of Christ's reproach also shows up a little later in Hebrews. In Hebrews 13, 13, the author exhorts his readers, let us go to him, that is Christ, outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. And then verse 15 of chapter 13, through him, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Moses acknowledged the name of God's people, and in some way he acknowledged the name of God's promised anointed one. By faith, we count the treasure of, of confessing Christ as greater wealth than anything this world has to offer. Even when acknowledging Christ brings persecution, we see it as a treasure. By faith, we come to see the reproach that comes with being associated with Christ as greater wealth than a healthy salary or a seat at the political table. How are you doing when it comes to resisting the allure of power? Where are you tempted to 
compromise in, with our world to, to make sure that you or, or your children get ahead? Do you treasure the reproach of Christ? The section on Moses ends with a mention of the Passover. Through the sprinkled blood of the lamb, the destroyer did not touch the firstborn. Brothers and sisters, it's through the reproach of Christ, the sprinkling of his blood, that salvation comes. Do you treasure the blood of Christ that saves you from the power of death? It said that Moses was looking to the reward. We resist the allure of power by faith, trusting that God's reward in Christ is greater than the treasures of this life. When tempted by power, we live by faith in Christ. In the next section, we see that faith is tested by the allure of the status quo. Let's read verses 29 through 31. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. I think on face value, it doesn't seem like there's much of a test here, right? What did the Israelites have to do other than walk through on dry ground, right? They had Egypt on one hand, sea on the other hand, the way opens, and they walk. Marching to Jericho, marching around Jericho seven times might have seemed strange, but it seemed like a better option than launching an attack on a fortified city. But what if those weren't the only options? I mean, maybe the Israelites could have sued for peace there with their backs against the wall of the Red Sea. They often expressed that longing, didn't they, when they were in the wilderness? Maybe we can just go back to Egypt. You know, at least there we had food to eat. Or maybe in the conquest, the people of Israel could have found a way to sort of live with their pagan neighbors. And, and again, for, find a kind of maybe peace, even if it was sometimes uneasy. And in some ways, isn't that kind of where they ended up? After the initial conquest, they did find different ways to, to make peace with their idolatrous neighbors. But in the situations the author of Hebrews recounts here, God brings the issue to a very clarifying head. And he does so in a way that shows the Israelites what their choice really was. It wasn't a choice between God's way and the status quo. It was a life or death choice. The question before the Israelites was this, will you receive God's miraculous salvation or will you disobey? Or we could put the question this way, what are you afraid of? What are you more afraid of? The Egyptians or God? The Canaanites or God? Do you value the salvation that God offers, the salvation that comes through trusting him, but you can't see? Or would you rather go for some, some kind of bare survival in Egypt or Canaan? These tests brought clarity to the situation, right? The, Isra the Israelites were safe, the Egyptians drowned in the sea. Those who trusted God were delivered. 
But the disobedient in Jericho perished. The ultimate choice that's presented here is choice between life in God's presence or eternal death. And Rahab illustrates the choice for us. She had every incentive to side with her Jericho neighbors, right? That she was one of them. She had no reason to welcome God's people. And because of her notorious sin, she had no reason to think that she would have a place in God's kingdom. But we read that she welcomed the spies. She, by faith, valued the salvation that the spies offered her, God's salvation. She valued that more than ongoing life in Jericho. She believed with the eyes of faith that that life in Jericho was not ongoing. That the status quo wasn't an option for her. And because of her faith, we're told she did not perish with the disobedient. Every person has to confront this choice that God posed to his people. Will you have life with God or eternal destruction? The peace that the world offers is tempting. It's tempting to opt for the status quo. But these dramatic examples of salvation through judgment show you the truth. The status quo won't last. Your life will come down to one or two outcomes. Either you'll be saved by faith through Christ, or you will experience the destruction of the disobedient. The only way to know God's salvation is to trust that Jesus died to pay for your sins. And it's the disobedience of unbelief that ultimately condemns anyone to God's eternal judgment. Rahab shows us that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. If this sinful Canaanite woman can be saved by faith, there is hope for all of us. Everyone who believes in Christ is delivered from destruction. Do you see your urgent need for the salvation that Christ offers? Or are you trying to work out your own solution? Are you trying to hold on to living life your own way? Will you be saved by faith or perish with the disobedient? That's the ultimate question. We need faith to see that the status quo is passing away, that it is no final hope. We need faith to trust in Christ. The author closes his list of the faithful with a flurry of examples in verses 32 through 38. And in all of these cases, we see how faith is tested by our weakness. So let's go and read those verses, verses 32 through 38. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, 
destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. I want you to notice in this passage there's a, a contrast. So in verses 33 through the first part of 35, all the examples are, are relatively positive examples. So we see people conquering kingdoms, escaping the edge of the sword. We're reminded of the story of Daniel in the lion's den. The mouths of lions are stopped. Also from Daniel, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego surviving the fiery furnace. We also see a, a woman who receives back her dead, or women who receive back their dead. Resurrection from the dead. But then in the second half, beginning in the second half of verse 35, we read of people killed by the sword. People who were tortured and imprisoned, who became exiles, wandering around in the desert, essentially living in holes in the ground. We know from 2 Chronicles 24 and 19 that the prophet Zechariah was stoned in the temple courtyard by the command of King Joash. And tradition has it that the prophet Isaiah is the one that was sawn in two. The nub of this passage is verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Like you read earlier in our service this morning, some died and immediately were raised like that, that woman's son. But then others died and they are still awaiting their resurrection. Now, it may look, after I recount those contrasts, like what we have here are two groups. We have victorious Christians and suffering Christians. But I want you to see that what we really see is one group. We have one group, weak people who suffered. Some of them saw more immediate relief from their suffering or more tangible blessings in the face of suffering in this life but others experienced extreme pain with no relief. But they all suffered. Just think of the, the famous example of Daniel in the lion's den. We would all love to experience that miracle, right? Or, or would we? Do you want to pass the night in the lion's den? Or even the woman who, who experienced the resurrection of her son. She experienced the loss of her son, right? We, we could think about David and his, his mighty victories. Weren't those hard-fought victories on the run, under threat of his life? I think we should read this whole section as the story of those who were made strong out of weakness. But the strength expresses itself in various ways. For the people in the first half of the list, they, they experienced maybe more visible expressions of strength. They became mighty in war. They put armies to flight. But those who suffered intensely and endured were also strong. And notice that the, the author's outburst of commendation comes at the end in verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. He says this as he's recounting these examples of terrible suffering. So we see they all suffered, but we also see that they all had faith. And note, their faith is not in their circumstances improving. 
Their faith was in the God that they could not see. David's victories in battle were not the ultimate aim of his faith. Just remember the famous Psalm 23. His hope is that he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's where the psalm ends. Daniel's life wasn't centered around achieving miraculous victories over lions. His desire was to be a servant of the living God, even while living in Babylon under the reign of King Darius. Weakness tempts us to think we need something other than faith. So when we feel weak, we think maybe we need to escape. We need a drink of alcohol or we need entertainment. When we're weak, or we, we may feel entitled to be served by others. We might use weakness as an, a, a justification for, for our sin, for an angry outburst. Weakness tests our faith. But the Lord shows us that weakness need not destroy our faith. By faith... We can made, be made strong out of weakness. The, and the faith that leads to strength in weakness is this faith in resurrection. Again, look at the second half of verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. That's our hope as Christians. Our hope is the resurrection life that comes through faith in Christ. Now, those of us in this room, we can claim that we enjoy more material blessings than many Christians throughout history and many Christians alive today. We're, we're on the positive side of the ledger by and large when it comes to material blessing. And many Christians would look at us and say, well, they've got the victorious life. They live at peace. They've got religious freedom to worship. They're prosperous. But if those blessings become the things we're living for, if they become the object of our faith, we are lost. True faith looks to the reward. It looks to the reward of life with Christ that comes by his gospel. So in the grand scheme of things, there are not weak Christians and strong Christians. There are not suffering Christians and victorious Christians. We are all weak, made strong by faith. True Christians are suffering Christians who endure by faith. Do you know that you're weak? Do you know that all Christians are weak? Weakness is no reason to give up. Weakness and suffering are not signs that God has abandoned you. God's people are those who are made strong by faith. And Christ's resurrection life is our strength. Isn't that what the author of Hebrews has been preaching to us week after week? Our hope is in the risen Lord, seated at God's right hand. So we endure suffering, even terrible torture, by holding fast to Christ. So what is Christ calling you to endure? Obedience to Christ will lead us through some painful spots. Daniel's faith and obedience led him into the lion's den. Faith in Christ has led many Christians into violent death or loss of their homes. What costly obedience 
is Christ calling you to pursue? What suffering are you enduring now? Do you have the strength that Christ supplies? Your brothers and sisters here in the church, they know the ways that you're weak and need help. Are you seeking encouragement from them in their prayers? And do you know your brother and sister's weakness, the people sitting around you? Are you praying for them? Are you seeking to encourage them to maintain their faith in the resurrection life? Remember, we are not trusting in immediate miraculous deliverance from suffering, even as it's perfectly fine and good to pray for immediate miraculous relief. But we are not promised that. But Christ does promise new life with him forever. We can endure in our weakness, knowing that we will rise again to a better life. Resurrection is our hope. The author ends this passage by reminding us of the something better that God has provided for us. He says that it is through this something better that the saints of old are made perfect. Remember, we're talking about perfection in Hebrews. We're not talking about a kind of sinless perfectionism. We're talking about the perfect sacrifice of Christ perfectly cleansing the consciences of sinners. We're told in chapter 2, verse 10, that Christ himself was made perfect through suffering. And then in chapter 5, verse 9, that Christ being made perfect became the source of eternal salvation for all who obeyed him. We've also been reminded that the law made nothing perfect and the old covenant sacrifices, they couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But Christ's work, Christ's complete work, has brought perfection to us. By Christ's work, we are perfectly cleansed. We are perfectly and completely justified. We stand before God as perfectly righteous. This is what Abraham and Moses and Rahab and David and Daniel were all looking forward to. They trusted that God would provide a descendant of Abraham who would bless the world. They trusted that God would bring a a descendant of David to sit on his throne forever. And their trust was not misplaced. Now, did they know that it would be God himself who would come And that he would save by suffering death? Well, Isaiah knew something of that. Whatever they knew, we know how they were perfected. It wasn't through victories won in battle. It wasn't through surviving the fiery furnace. That's not how they received salvation. They received it through Christ, the one who's been provided for us. So when God's promises seem to fail, we remember that the darkness of Good Friday gave way to the light of Easter Sunday. When we're intimidated by evil power, we trust in the one who has the power to bring life out of death. When we're tempted by the status quo, the eyes of faith show us that it's passing away and that only those who trust in Christ will be delivered from death. When we're weak, and we're suffering for righteousness' sake, we endure by faith, 
faith in the risen and exalted Savior, trusting that we will rise again to a better life. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would grant to us the faith of our father Abraham, who when he, is, he was tested, he believed that you were able to raise his son. Give us faith in resurrection life that comes through Jesus Christ. Empower us by this faith to pursue costly obedience. Empower us by this faith to encourage each other to run the race with endurance. Father, we thank you for this gospel message by which we are saved. Thank you that we don't have to wonder how you will keep your promises because you have kept them for us in Christ. Give us eyes to see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.